0: Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website vineyard61.org or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, Battersea, Ballam and Westside. It's so good to be with you uh, this morning. My name Mike. For those who haven't met, uh, I have the privilege of being a part of the V61 staff team and uh, of also overseeing discipleship across the different sites. And together with, with Julia, I, I give some leadership to Balaam V61. So it's great to be with you this morning. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump straight into our new series, which is a series on 1 Peter that we're going to be looking at for the next six weeks, unpacking this text and asking the question, what did it mean then and there to those original hearers? and what does it mean here and now to us today uh, in London in 2022. So I'm gonna jump right in if that's okay um, so that we can crack on with this incredible letter and what Peter has to say to us today. So let let me start this way. Have you ever gone through a moment of significant life change where the way that you relate to a person or a place is no longer the same? That could be a relational change. It could be because you've changed locations or you've moved to a new neighborhood or a new country perhaps. And suddenly the way you are in that place and that place to you has taken on an entirely new light and dimension. I know that for me and in my life, uh, the way I arrived at high school as a 13 year old was totally different from the way that I left high school five years later. And that's because something significant happened right in the middle of my experience of being in high school. I became a Christian. And I immediately found myself living in attention. I had an identity coming in to high school that changed. I found myself with a new identity. And I asked myself the question: what does it look like now to live in this space relating to these people? It was like the world had changed around me. Suddenly God was real, and this cast everything in a new and different light. I began to learn how to relate to people. And places as a follower of Jesus. Friends didn't understand this, they didn't like this, uh, and I did find myself in the midst of a very real and live difficult tension. So I found myself facing the question, what do I do? Should I try to fit in with how I used to be? Or do I embrace some of the pain of being different? Since this time, I've, I've gained some more perspective, and, I, and in looking back, I've realized a few things. I was experiencing something in a small way in my life that had been going on in a big way in the world around us and around me. That is, the Christian church has been navigating serious changes in a Western context for quite some time. And by Western, it's a hard word to explain, but what I basically mean is uh, places usually associated with the global north, places like North America, parts of Europe, and uh, Australasia. And uh, when we talk about the West or Western culture, we're talking about values and commitments that flow from these spaces into the other places that are influenced by them. So we've been experiencing serious changes in this Western context there was a recent really interesting study uh, about Christianity in its global context, and it started to track some of these movements and these changes. And it said in 20 in 1910, rather, over 80% of the world's Christians lived in the global north, so that is north of the equator. But by 2020, the projection is that the global south will be home to 85% of the global population, 66% of all of those, uh, of all Christians 60 perc- 66% of all Christians will be in the global south and by 2100 the global capital for christianity is predict- predicted to be in Nigeria at the same time of, as the shift of uh, population and christian um, people from the north to the south christianity has rapidly been disappearing from public life in the west faith is tolerated if it's practiced in private Perceptions of people of faith, especially Christians, seem to be mixed at best, mostly leaning towards the negative. And there's lots of different reasons for this, some justified and some just associated with the shift in the times. Christianity is seen not just as outdated, but as potentially harmful to society. Now I'm not trying to say woe is the church and throw one big self-pity tea party. That's not my, my goal in all of this. My point is this, by all accounts, to be a Christian in the West today is to live as a counter-cultural community. Of course, this is also true of non-Western areas where persecution exists, places like Northern Africa, Middle East, and uh, of course, North Korea. But these changes specifically in the West have been referred to and summed up as post-Christian. We are living in post-Christian Times. What does this mean? What does post Christian mean? Well, in the past, there may have been a shared basis of understanding as a Western culture and society, but Christian beliefs, values, and attitudes can no longer be assumed as agreed on in the West. Christians live next to, work with, and are, have friendships with people of completely different worldviews, which, if you were part of our Tough Questions series, the the whole point of that series was to uh, bring out some of those questions that exist in this uh, culture with many worldviews. So in a post-Christian context, Christians are cultural minorities, not necessarily in terms of hard numbers, but in terms of today's culture makers and influencers. And the result of this is a growing tension between Christians and the surrounding, largely non-believing society. So here's the question. How do we live as Christians in such a culture? Should churches withdraw from this kind of society, build hypothetical bomb shelters and wait for the apocalypse? Or should we give up on Christianity's outdated and difficult bits to kind of just adapt and flow with the times that we're in? What does faithful discipleship to Jesus look like in it all? These are really, really important questions to be asked. What if there were a resource that helped provide a way through the maze and the mess? What if we had instructions on how to live faithfully in such a time? Well, thankfully, you'll be pleased to know there is. There is a manual. There are a set of instructions. There is a resource. And it may surprise you to know that 1 Peter was written for just this purpose. It was intended for those who were finding it difficult to live as faithful disciples in their day. The pressure and the tension was real, it is real still. If my talk had a title, uh, it would be this, Living as Faithful Modern Exiles. But because we don't do titles in V61, um, there's no title for this talk. And over the next six weeks, what we're gonna do is we're gonna try to trace out Peter's encouragements to us uh, as modern day exiles and how we live this out in our day-to-day lives. This is relevant stuff. This is real stuff. This is us coming to grips with Christianity in our lives for today. So what I wanna do is, uh, my job really uh, this morning is, is really simple. It's to, it's to introduce the series, it's to kick it off, and to look at just the opening few verses to help us to do that. 1 Peter chapter one, verses uh, one through two. That, that's my goal. And so uh, I'm gonna read that to us, and then I'm gonna pray and unpack a little bit of how to think about uh, Peter's vision for that kind of discipleship today. So if you can turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to go uh, to 1 Peter towards the end of the New Testament, and I'm just going to read from chapter 1, uh, the first, first few verses. It should come up uh, on the screen as well for you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let me pray for us briefly. Father, thank you for the opportunity to consider these things together today. Thank you that we get together, that we get to think through and pray through and learn from your scriptures what it means to be modern-day exiles and faithful disciples to Jesus. Would you give us grace to live this out? Would you give us wisdom to know how to do this in times that might be hostile uh, to us and to our faith? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so three things that I'm going to do today. Well, three questions that I'm going to pose and answer to try and introduce this letter to us. And whenever you are actually approaching a a text in scripture, or maybe it's a letter in the New Testament, a great way to start is to ask these three questions. Who to why? Who to why? Who has written this letter? To whom has the letter been written? And why has this letter been written? If we can answer some of those questions, they start to help us to trace what is being said and meant and how we can translate that to our lives today. So those are the questions I'm going to answer. Uh starting with who wrote 1st Peter? So who wrote 1st First Peter? Firstly, or well, traditionally, uh Peter the apostle of Jesus has been considered the author of this letter. And this has been the view since the earliest times, the early uh 2nd century AD, that is the early 100s AD. That has been the view that Peter the apostle wrote this. There are those who doubt that Peter wrote this letter, but to be honest in my own study of of their views and their arguments, uh, I don't find their reasons for doubting Peter as the author to be convincing. And the author actually helpfully identifies himself at the beginning as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So I, I think we can we can uh, fairly safely uh, go with with that. The letter itself was written between 60 to 64 AD from Rome, where Peter was at the time. And just after this time of writing the letter, uh, around AD 64, church tradition has it that Peter uh, was martyred during Emperor Nero's persecutions against Christians. So it was very shortly after this letter that Peter um, was actually uh, killed, martyred. So that's who wrote the letter. Secondly, to whom was first Peter written? Well, again, we read um, in the, the very first verses of this letter, Peter addresses it to specific people. He says, To the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So you'll see a map that will come up on the screen that will outline this vast area of, of, of space that Peter's writing this letter uh, to. And who are these people? they mostly non-Jewish believers scattered across uh, the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Maybe some of you have uh, unwittingly gone on holiday to some of these areas, or maybe you, you have known it. I've, I've heard Cappadocia is particularly a place to go. Anyway, that aside, um, this is modern-day Turkey. It's a vast geography. In fact, it's approximately 129,000 square miles in size, which is almost the same size as the state of California in uh, in the USA. Vast area of incredible diversity of peoples, of language, and uh, of, of land itself. This language of exiles and being chosen by God, which we see in the first few verses of the letter, was usually used of Israel. This is language that's typical of Israel as used in the First Testament, the Old Testament. But Peter does something significant in this letter. He, he transfers this language onto mostly non-Jews, that is Gentiles, who have been united together with Jews as God's people in Christ. He's wanting to bring these new followers of Jesus, mostly from non-Jewish backgrounds, into the story of what God is doing in the world. And you'll see this kind of language throughout the letter um, that is drawing us consistently together in Christ. Thirdly, why was Peter? written first peter written well peter actually tells us why he writes this letter usually it's very difficult to find the concrete expressed reason as to why something in scripture is written but here peter actually gives us a purpose statement that occasioned this letter Um, and we find this in chapter 5 and verse 12 peter says i have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of god stand fast in it He's writing to communicate God's grace in a time of suffering and trial. That's what this grace was needed for. These Christians were going through very difficult various sets of trials and sufferings, and they needed to be reminded of the true grace of God that would enable them to persevere and to persist in living faithfully to God in that context. It seems like these Christians were experiencing a hard time because of their Christian faith. And convictions. So, there may be for us as modern day readers an unspoken challenge in trying to relate to this particular text and situation of these early uh, believers. Have we experienced trials like this for being Christians in our culture? And if we feel like we haven't, we may feel like we can't relate to this uh, particular text, which is why maybe. Peter has been so sidelined for so long, in particularly Western cultures and spaces. It's not the go to book. Usually we go to Romans or Acts for inspiration, not Peter. While first Peter has been sidelined in Western contexts, it's actually remained a firm favorite in persecuted areas. In former Yugoslavia and Muslim Indonesia, first Peter is said to be the most popular book among Christians. But if we haven't experienced this outright persecution, does this mean Peter is not writing for us? To answer this question, we need to understand the situation of those who first received this letter. And as we analyze what they went through, and what they were experienced, we realized that the trials they were going through were due to unofficial harassment rather than official policy. Things like verbal slander, malicious talk, and false accusations. We see an example of this in chapter 4, verse 4. Peter writes, They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they blaspheme. Or footnote of the NRSV says, or so they malign you. So what we're seeing here is is not so much state-sponsored persecution, that will come later what we're seeing is kind of an unofficial harassment from people around them who do not share their beliefs or their convictions or their world view. It's best understood as social ostracism for being Christians. Why? Why, why was this ostracism there? I mean, apart from the quirky views about things like communion being the body and the blood of Christ and, and other people being in the community being our sister and our brother, and we're saying, I love you, and that appearing as incestuous to the early Roman communities, P- setting those things aside. Christians called Jesus Lord, which is the all which is a Greek word, um, kurios. The interesting thing is that that was the word that all Roman, um, all of the Roman colonies used of Caesar. Caesar was kurios, not Jesus. So here you have these Christians stepping onto the scene saying there's one kurios and it's not Caesar. So these kinds of convictions increasingly meant being pushed to the margins of society. So maybe we can relate to the sufferings that Peter writes of more than we first thought. It may sound familiar to our own experiences today here in London, in the UK, in 2022. Something like social suspicion, or maybe even at least some Ostracism, pressure to say Caesar is Lord instead of Jesus. And in the midst of this growing tension between our Christian convictions and beliefs and the surrounding society and culture, Peter outlines a way to live as faithful disciples, a way to be faithful in the midst of hostility, tension and difficulty. And so I get to my final point that I want to say today, which is a peculiar self-understanding that we can have as Christians that will help us to remain faithful in the midst of all of that around us. Did you notice how Peter addressed the uh, people he was writing to in that first uh, verse of the first chapter? Peter writes to the exiles, to the the exiles. This is his favorite description uh, for charting a way through the tension. Again in chapter 2 verse 11 he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that war against the soul. This is picked up in different parts of Peter's letter as a way to understand how to differentiate from the surrounding culture and how to chart a faithful course through aliens and exiles. Karen Jobs is a Bible commentator. It's, she's written an excellent commentary on 1 Peter. And she says that this description of, of exiles and aliens is the controlling concept for how Peter wishes his readers to understand themselves and their engagement with society. So really, there's three options. If we look at the surrounding culture and we see that there's a tension between how they live and how we believe we are being called to live as followers of Jesus, there's three options in terms of response to that tension. The first is to separate ourselves. We want to be holy. We want to maintain faithfulness in following Jesus. And so there may be that little voice in the back of our heads that heads that says maybe it's safer for me to separate myself from the culture stay in a holy huddle stay in church go to 15 meetings a week go to all the revival services go to every charismatic soaking session that i can think of and find and stay there that is where it's safe now all of those things are wonderful but I'm sure you're catching from my tone that I don't believe that that's necessarily the way that Peter describes for us, not the way of separation. What about the way of assimilation? We might look at the differences in front of us and go, how are these people ever going uh, to start to follow Jesus? How do we win people to Christ might be our question. The answer we might be tempted to give is to say, well, we need to become like the surrounding culture We need to engage, we need to be present too. we need to adopt the beliefs and the practices of the culture that we are in. we need to assimilate. And maybe that is the way that we can find of navigating this tension. I don't think those two options are options. I think in fact that they are non-options because there's a third way that is different from those two that Peter gives us. And that is encompassed in this description of exile. It's the way of holy presence, holy presence. And in those two words, we get a picture of what it means to follow Jesus in the tension of being in a culture that may not represent our convictions and beliefs. We are to be present. We are to be in the world, present to the world, not rejecting it as bad. When God created the heavens and the earth, he declared them to be good. And even though sin has corrupted processes and ways and things are not as they should be, that declaration still stands. The created world is good. And we need to be present in culture as culture makers, still inhabiting and creating from that original mandate that we were given to bring flourishing to all of creation. We are to be present in and to the world, not escaping. This is not the response. We are to be present, but we're also to be holy. We're also to be those that are holy, those who embody the convictions of another world, the kingdom of God, longing and praying for that kingdom to break into our world and for that kingdom to increasingly become the culture that we see uh, around us. Holy presence is the practical expression of being an exile in this world today. And Peter is clear, this is Jesus-shaped jesus shaped engagement. What did Jesus do? Well, the Son, as the second member of the Trinity, took on flesh and came into the world. That is a yes to creation. That is God's yes to the physical material world, taking on flesh, becoming one of us, becoming human. And yet, the same world that Jesus comes to save is the world that crucifies him. And so we see in this moment of Jesus' the sun taking on flesh, we see both a yes and a no to the world. We see holy presence. We're fully present in and to the world, yet not of it. John Tyson and Heather Grizzle, in their book, Creative Minorities, say that this looks like influencing through redemptive participation. Redemptive participation. Fully in. Fully in but always maintaining our distinctiveness as those who confess Jesus as Lord. In the midst of the ostracism and the rival beliefs, values, and gods, the way we are to understand our relation to society is as exiles and aliens. Holy presence. So there's a prophetic call at the heart of First Peter. To live with courageous faith by the empowering grace of God, even in the face of various forms of hostility. And we can be faithful because of the faithfulness of Christ. One has come before us who has done what we could never do. He's not just our example. he is our substitute. He did it for us on our behalf. And we put our little faith in his big faith. So as we come into land, I want to leave you with a question to sit with for this week. It's a question I've been sitting with and will continue to sit with. Here it is. What would it look like for you to adopt a self-understanding of exile in your day-to-day living in London? What would it look like you practically to adopt that self-understanding of exile, holy presence, in your day-to-day living in London. Even just consider that, ponder that now for a moment. Maybe write down the question. Take it to God in prayer. I think there's something for us in this. There's a prophetic call over us as a church coming from this letter to be holy, present, a holy presence. The very last thing I want to say is to recall who is writing this letter. It's Peter. Peter is writing this letter. This is the apostle who folded under pressure, who got it wrong. He is not writing without first-hand knowledge of the fiery trial. Maybe even that reference is a reference to that fire he remembers at which he denied Jesus. He failed, but he never stopped following He learned to live by God's grace. He may have deserted Jesus in the garden, but he ended up closer to Jesus than he may have liked in the end. He too was crucified like his Lord. But he wasn't willing to be crucified like him, so he said, you're going to need to do it upside down. Peter was crucified upside down in AD 64. Even if you fail in this time of exile, keep following keep seeking to be a holy presence and keep the holy flame burning this is the prophetic call that peter gives us this is the prophetic call that we are going to explore as v61 over these next five to six weeks let's pray and and as i pray can i can i invite the the bands to come up worship teams across the different sites if you could come up in this moment as i pray Let's just take a moment to to be quiet, to let this sit in our hearts, to let this challenge provoke us, to let the encouragement stir us. Let's let's just be quiet for a moment if you want to close your eyes. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for this call, this prophetic call to be exiles. To be a holy presence, not separating from the world out of fear, nor assimilating to the world out of fear, but maintaining our loyalty to Jesus Christ the Lord, the Kurios. Would you help us? Would you help us to be that distinctive community that even when we fail, we never stop following, we never stop drawing on your grace. Lord, I want to pray for those this morning who have felt like they've failed who have felt like they haven't been a faithful follower. They've seen this world too much as a home. Lord, I ask for your grace to be poured out this morning. That you would surround people by your grace. And as we go into this week, help us to sit with that question. What does it mean? To be in exile today in London. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard sixty-one speakers.